Hey, hey, everybody. If you're listening to this, you are listening to the first free hour of this episode of The Shift with Doug McKinty. If you like what you're hearing, please consider subscribing to the show in order to access the full feature-length versions of the podcast, as well as have access to the members' forum, where we discuss potential topics and interviews and dive deep into the overall concept of The Shift. For only six bucks a month, not only do you get the full-length episodes, but also an opportunity to co-create with me, your host, Doug McKinty, the future of the show. Go to www.theshiftnow.com or patreon.com backslash the shift and sign up today in order to help make the shift possible. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. morning, noon, or night, whenever and wherever you are listening, you are listening to The Shift. I'm your host. My name is Doug McKenty. This episode was recorded on December 11th, 2021. Today on the program, I'm happy to announce returning guest Donald Jeffries. Donald's latest book on borrowed fame, money, mysteries, and corruption in the entertainment world delves into the fascinating inconsistencies that pervade both the music and movie industries. In it, he reveals just how few of those we might consider famous ever really make it in life. The book uncovers profound financial disparities which find some celebrated artists receiving millions for their work, while many others remain impoverished, even homeless, despite having achieved what many perceive as the pinnacle of fame and success. He exposes a dark underbelly lurking within the entertainment industry, which includes mobster connections, as well as high rates of murder, suicide, predatory sexual behavior, and drug addiction. While the book doesn't provide many answers as to why this type of behavior is so prevalent in Hollywood, it does raise many questions that invite the reader to wonder how those within an industry that provides fame and fortune could be so rife with obvious dysfunction. Within the larger cultural context, what makes artists so susceptible to self-sabotaging behavior? How can success be so fleeting for the vast majority of those who dedicate their lives to the entertainment industry? What is the connection between the art world and organized crime, government intelligence agencies, and political propaganda? Though the answers are difficult to come by, Donald's latest book entails just how pertinent these questions are and provides the reader a backstage pass into the shocking reality of the business responsible for providing art and entertainment to the world at large. Enjoy this conversation that will dive deep into these unanswered questions and provide some theories as to why this particular industry attracts such a motley assortment of interesting characters both on screen and in real life. Perhaps the commodification and corporatization of art leads to the alienation of those involved. Maybe creative people are just chronically unstable. No matter the reason, Donald's work provides an expose of a unique industry with as much diversity and mystery as the many movies, sitcoms, and albums it produces. Find out more about the work of Donald Jeffries at www.donaldjeffries.wordpress.com. As always, you can find out more about The Shift by going to www.theshiftnow.com where you can find hours of free content, sign up for the newsletter, subscribe for feature-length episodes of the show. You can connect with me by looking up Doug McKinty on Facebook, search at McKinty on Twitter, or check out The Shift with Doug McKinty on SoundCloud, Rockfin, or Odyssey. If you like what you're hearing, please like, subscribe, and share this program throughout your social media networks. We rely on listeners like you to distribute this alternative information. I'd like to thank author Donald Jeffries for agreeing to this interview, and thank you for helping to make the shift. 
Hey, everybody, and welcome to this, the 101st episode of The Shift. I'm your host, host Doug McKinty, and I am joined today uh, by author Donald Jeffries. He has written a new book entitled On Borrowed Fame, Money, Mysteries, and Corruption in the Entertainment World. I had Don on uh, a few months back to talk about his book, Bullyocracy, which I found extremely interesting, uh, just about a lot of the bullying that goes on and how much people get away with it, especially in the public school system uh, and in the university systems. Um, But uh, today we're going to be talking about uh, the entertainment industry and how crazy those guys seem to be. The book was jam-packed full of a lot of different information, uh, and I think uh, you'll find this conversation as interesting as I found the book. So uh, let's just uh, bring Don on here to explain. You want to just give a little bit of your history, Don, and uh, and then explain what interested you about the entertainment industry and why you wrote this book. Sure. Well, thanks for having me on. Uh, I've I've written, this is my sixth book, uh, I wrote one novel, The Unreals. That was the first thing I had published. Uh, ever since then, it's been nonfiction. My first uh, nonfiction book was Hidden History, Crimes and Cover-Ups in American Politics. Uh, th- that was, uh, it's still my bestseller. That's done really well. Uh, then Survival of the Richest, as you mentioned, came after that. And then Crimes and Cover-Ups in American Politics, 1973. That one has a forward by Ron Paul. That's done pretty well, too. That's kind of Hidden History, too. And then uh, Bullyocracy. As you noted, and now on barred fame. So I write about more than politics. I, I, I kind of most people think of me when they think of the JFK assassination in the political mm-hmm. world. But uh, as you can see, I write about uh, all these things in entertainment. I've always been interested in entertainment. I'm a, a Hollywood junkie. I know probably way too much about the golden age of Hollywood. And uh, at one time, I wanted to break into the music business. I started writing. I wrote a bunch of songs. That's what I wrote for. And uh, so I had visions, dreams of, you know, being a rock star like so many people did as well. So uh, I've always had one foot in that world as well. So I just I just got interested in what I started hearing about so many of these entertainers weren't paid fairly. So I said, well, let's, let's go with this and proceed from there. I think we have a book here. Well, why don't we just start with that? Because that was one of the most interesting facets of the book where you discuss how, uh, you know, a lot of us think that, well, if we know a famous person, then they're they're probably super wealthy. They've done quite well. Uh, but you describe just over and over again with countless examples of how difficult it actually is for people in the entertainment industry to really have control over their finances. And a lot of times people just plain get screwed. Um well, why don't why don't we get into that? Especially the disparities too, because some people just do incredibly well. They might write one song, and then end up with millions and millions of dollars. They never have to work again. Other people uh, work for decades and are barely scraping by by the end of it all. Yeah, and that's that's what fascinates me as well. Especially someone who wrote Survival of the Richest. I'm very interested in disparity of wealth, mm. and I didn't realize the, the extent it took. You know, that, that uh, looking at it in this industry now. I, di- I didn't even include things like, because, you know, sometimes if it has a natural explanation, like, for instance, a lot of the rock stars, uh, if they do a lot of drugs, sure. or, you know, they're, they're, you know, they just, you know, they just throw their money. A lot of them, you see that in the sports world a lot, where people that grew up poor and they have nothing and they suddenly get millions of dollars and they fritter it all away. They hire all their friends and pay them way too much money to be in their entourage. Uh, that kind of thing, I don't even, I don't, I don't even look into that. I'm just looking at things like, my favorite example is, you know, Betty Davis, who didn't have a drug problem that, you know, that I know of, didn't have any, and was a, a movie star for decades and a uh, big, big star, big as they come. And she left in a state of less than a million dollars. I found, I found that amazing. And then what I, I juxtaposed that against uh, Stephen Fetchian, 
who is the ultimate racial caricature of, of a, you know, people who think of him as even like an Tom of the entertainment business. But, but this guy left a $10 million. Hmm. And they, they were active in basically the same era. So, although Stephen Fetch and was nowhere near as active. So, I, those are the kind of things. I, that's my, my greatest example. I don't know how you can explain that. I don't, I don't know how that's possible. Someone could be seemingly way above the other one in terms of us, at least in the industry. And there doesn't seem to be like a drug based reason or, you know, like Mickey Rooney died and he left an estate of $18,000. Hmm. That's pretty amazing, too. But yeah. he, did have eight, he was married eight times. So, okay, maybe maybe they took all his money. I don't know. So, but uh, <laughs> Betty, Betty Davidson had an excuse. So I, I just find that fascinating. I mean, going to the music business as well, you know, people like Ray Davies, Kinks, one of my favorite groups. He wrote all their songs. He has, you know, like a much depending. At first, I found it's two million. I thought that doesn't even seem possible. And then, then later, twelve million. But still, it's dwarfed by like Don Henley, the Eagles, three hundred and fifty million. You know, right. these are comparable figures, and that's what I look at. People, how did Lulu, you know, who had one hit song to serve with love in the nineteen sixties? She has a thirty million dollar wealth, which is way more, three times what Jackson Brown has again, who wrote all his material. So. Uh, that's the kind of thing that amazes me. How how does this work? How does the how does the industry uh, bestow this money in such a, a wildly uh, you know unfair in, in and certainly inconsistent way? Mm-hmm. Yeah, another one that I noticed in the book was I think Jim Morrison had an estate of four hundred thousand, and now yeah. Jim Jimi Hendrix just basically a, a similar in terms of the number of albums uh, and in terms of even drug issues and dying young. Uh, has an estate of $175 million at this point. That's yeah. just crazy to try to comprehend yeah. how that could happen. Yeah, and even I, I, I listed, you know, I found a couple of websites that listed what some of the performers were paid at Woodstock. These are all huge stars. Uh, Jimi Hendrix was, you know, Jimi Hendrix, I think, became bigger after he died, to tell you the truth. Yeah. I, I, I early, but but still, okay, say he's a big star. Was, was he really bigger than you know, some of the other acts I list there? But he was paid a lot more for that. Why? Right. And especially he was the, the black act. You know, you would think maybe he'd be paid less. So I, I, none of it makes any sense to me. I, I just put the figures out. They are what they are. And uh, they yeah. fascinate me. And I, I, I hope they'll interest me. I saw, uh, actually, it seemed like Carlos Santana got a pittance for Woodstock, yes. actually. Yes, just yes. almost nothing. Probably yeah. not enough to pay, you know, for the yeah. setup <laughs> to get there. Yeah. <laughs> I, so, I mean, I, had, I don't, you know, and Santana was, you know, arguably at the same level as some of those other performers. Then. Uh, yeah, that, that's what amazes me. I don't know how it works. And, of course, when you have an industry like that, where it's not, uh, for instance, you know, you're not belonging to, a, you know, you're not to, in a structured environment where you know pretty much what people are paid to do a particular job in a corporation. They're about, you know, what they're paid. Something like that is kind of, it is a wild card. So that's why you have things like uh, Bela Lugosi. One of the glaring notes in the book is that Bela Lugosi was an iconic figure. And, uh, you know, he portrayed the Dracula, the 1931 film, which people still, when they think of Dracula, they think of him. Uh, he was paid three thousand five hundred dollars for that role. Same film. Jo- uh, Jonathan Harker was a lesser character. He was played by David Manners. Same film. David Manners was paid fourteen thousand dollars. Yeah, fifth or sixth down the charts. Now that's blatant, blatantly unfair. And the only reason it happened is because they took advantage of Bela Lugosi. He was uh, challenged with English. He was 
and I think a lot of times they just see, uh, you know, they see people that are naive. Uh, Robert Taylor was another one, a huge, big film star in the early days of Hollywood. And I found, you know, I just found references to him being, was well known. He was the lowest paid movie star out there. It was, it was I guess he had good nature or something. It, they, they knew they could pay him that. And so there's some of that, I guess, where they figure maybe they take advantage of people. And the rock stars, it's just all over the place. Because a lot of times, said I, I have uh, many, many references there where, you know, performers told me, what royalties? They literally didn't get it. Yeah, in recent years, you had people like Waylon Jennings who claimed he'd never earned a royalty in his life. I, I don't know how that's possible. Yeah. But that's the reality of the business. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it made me think about, like... I mean, how is art constructed in our culture? You know, like what what does it mean to make art? And and there's a, such a blurring in the the entertainment industry because there are these huge corporations and these hierarchies, uh, and there's a lot of money coming in and out, and it's very cutthroat. Um, but it just it's uh, there's something tragic about it. In fact, and we'll we'll definitely dive into all of this. But you know, the whole book basically describes one huge dysfunctional mess. Is what I got out of it. I mean, in terms yeah. of just the crazy lifestyles and the addiction issues, and uh, you know, the the murders and the corruption just throughout, uh, with so much money getting thrown around, and it just seems. Um, I mean, I guess kind of unhealthy overall, unhealthy psychologically as an environment. And then and then what kind of a statement does it make about the fact that, I mean, there's supposed to be something, uh, you know, virtuous about being creative, you know, something about the evolution of our culture in terms of of what we're ingesting in terms of the, the predominant art forms. Uh, and yet we're seeing uh, so much dysfunction throughout the industry. I mean, what are your thoughts on all of that? Yeah, well, I think there, there's obviously a lot of dysfunction. You know, certainly in the music business, part of it, so much of it is the, you know, really the startling level of drug abuse, which I, I've never really understood, especially yeah. now. You know, we have decades worth of experience to know not wise to use heroin or things like that, but you still have people that are doing it. And I, I'm not sure why. And I, I don't know why, whether it's rock stars or movie stars, why these are the people that are leading seemingly an idyllic lifestyle that all of us fantasize about leading. So you'd think they'd want to be sober to soak it all in. Right. <laughs> you know, you think people that, you know, the working class stiffs that are living, you know, week to week and having bleak circumstances, those are the people that would be prone to drug addiction and, and alcoholism and uh, suicide, especially. You know, why, why, why are the entertainers that they kill themselves in wildly disproportionate numbers? Why do you want to get away from this from guilt? I don't know. Maybe the ones that succeed, now you can possibly argue that maybe some of the ones that, that were underpaid and didn't make it, they don't seem to be the ones that kill themselves. Maybe they would, you know, be, be feel really upset because I can understand how, you know, just in my little career as a writer, you know, I know that most people think I make a lot more money than I do. I, I can be like a McDonald's worker for this. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, I just, I, I, you know, you have to sell an awful lot of books to, to make money, but people right. kind of think that, you know, so. I'm sure, you know, like I thought, you know, anybody that was in a band, anybody that was on a television show, I mean, they, you know, I look at their net worths and a lot of them have a lower net worth than the average person does. Uh, you know, again, I use celebrity net worth for my uh, figures and I was told by a couple of them that, you know, that's not even, that's wildly exaggerated. So I, I figured that apparently all the figures are exaggerated. They have, uh -huh. they have a, a much greater net worth for all of them. But that still would seem to be kind of a uniformity. So, you know, I think there's still a difference 
whether the numbers are completely accurate or not, the differences are startling. So I, you know, I, the entertainment business is a very strange run. I think what attracted me to it too is that it's the only other industry besides politics, the political world, where you see these unbelievable numbers of unnatural deaths and uh, the way they die. You know, you see these murders and suicides and, and, and more importantly, where the authorities uh, will just kind of issue an absurd, say it was no foul play when there clearly was. Or a lot of times I, I was trying to figure out, you know, what a particular celebrity died from. And there's never any updates. Right. Autopsy results are pending. Uh, officials haven't released the cause of death and they never do. So it's like, you know, what, what happened? I mean, does that happen anywhere else in the world? I don't know. Uh, so that's what attracts me there. And I, I think there's really something I'm attracted to Randy Quaid. You know, he's kind of a renegade uh, actor now that's out there. But he's uh, come up talking about the Star Wackers theory. I think there may be something to that. Because a lot of times you look at the deaths of these entertainers and you can't. What happened? So it's clearly this was not natural. And then the authorities cover it up just like they do a political death. You know, yeah. Why? I'm not sure why. But something strange is going on there. Yeah, I mean that's uh that's definitely true. Something that you get I mean I think actually maybe the overall thesis of the book is like something strange is going on here. You can't quite put your finger on it. <laughs> yeah. Um I I do feel like um it was interesting while I was reading it because you know there's a part of it that's like I think in the art world or or in the entertainment business it's it is so much based on individuals and you know maybe some individuals were just capable of managing their money better than others or uh, you know other people had psychological issues um, and then they become sort of exacerbated by their experience in Hollywood. Uh, but overall, uh, the industry is so much different than, than your average industry in terms of all of these mysterious, uh, experiences. You mentioned Dave McGowan a number of times in the book, and that's one, that's one author that, uh, that's one interview that got away from me. I wish I had had a chance to talk to him because there's so much, um, interesting kind of behind the scenes knowledge in his work in terms of the entertainment business there. What, um, what did you discover in terms of looking behind the scenes that um, maybe uh, helped to clarify like some of Dave McGowan's work, just in terms of like, how much are the intelligence agencies working behind the scenes? Uh, what's going on? I mean, one of the things I think Dave, that uh, is bringing it up for me is this idea that so many of these guys are, are into drugs. I think Dave McGowan might even say that was a, a part of a kind of a CIA plot to spread drug use within the population. Uh, he talks about how uh, the Grateful Dead and Ken Kesey with the LSD use was started in, in Stanford. Certain government gr uh, grants and organizations were sort of promoting all of this. D did you find anything on that level? Uh, I mean, just uh, just comment on, on the intelligence agencies, maybe, and, and how they function in the entertainment world. Sure. Well, I mean, David Gowan, I, uh, it was a great inspiration to me. And I, I had just started reaching out to him before he died. You know, yeah. he suddenly got sick, but uh, very suspiciously, by the way. But, uh, you know, we uh, we had communicated through email and I become uh, good friends with Maria Heller, who was uh, he was basically her co-host for many years. Great. So she she and many others have compared me to him. I've been compared to him online a lot. So I consider that a great compliment. Uh and I quote, as you notice, I, I quote from his research a lot in this book, Weird Seasons Canyon, which is a great book. He did a lot of research. And, he, you know, a lot, 
one thing he found, obviously, that there's a thread running through all those rock groups that were so popular in the 60s and 70s. And that, that was when he looked in the backgrounds of the musicians. So many of them had fathers who, uh, who were high-ranking military officials or intelligence officers. So they came from that, that arena, which would seem strange because it was, it's disproportionate. And uh, one thing that I think he mentioned it, or it's a, uh, I, I found if you look at that era, uh, those rock stars were born at the perfect time to be eligible for the Vietnam War draft. Hmm. And to my knowledge, none of those rock stars, there wasn't a single one right. served in the Vietnam War. And they, their careers went on, so they didn't have to go to prison like Muhammad Ali or other people or, or go to Canada. So what happened? How did, how did they all avoid the draft? And, and they were all the perfect age for that. I, I don't think people have answered that. And Dave went into how a lot of the anti-war songs really weren't anti-war when you analyze them. So um, yeah, he did great stuff. To me. But, and and uh, he, he, I don't know if he was the first one, but certainly I, I uh, went into in later in the book, I talk about the CIA's uh, influence of a film. I sort of that culminated probably in Argo, you know, Ben Affleck's you know, love letter to the CIA that right. was shockingly enough won the best Oscar. And of course they had the best Oscar, best Oscar award handed out by Michelle Obama live from the White House. You know, it's like they knew what film was gonna win. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, perfect. You know, and, and so I'm talking about theater and politics, the line being blurred there, but the CIA uh for a long time has uh, has vetted a lot of these film companies where they uh, basically have to give their stamp of approval. You know, for writing something about the intelligence agencies, CIA, you know, they have, they said somebody, the media relations people that come over and they approve it or give their advice. And the military is the same thing. Any war movie you see, the Pentagon is deeply involved. And that's what, and they actually hold that out, hold it over their heads as, Hey, you want to use our military, you want to use our, our, our uh, you know, tanks, tanks and, uh, can look realistic you want to you know if you want to use any of our equipment or any stuff like that and we have to approve script so there's a good reason why there's so many glowing you know uh pro-military and pro-cia films because they're advising them and very few people are like oliver stone that have the guts to yeah yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a there's a connection. I was going to mention that I uh, I think the maybe it was like the second, maybe third interview that I that I produced for this podcast. The shift was with Tom Secker, where where we really went pretty pretty deeply into the connections between Hollywood uh, and the CIA and and the amount of scripts that they. Um, I mean, anytime you see uh, any kind of military equipment in any movie at all, then the entire script has to be approved. And it is just, uh, a, it has become an amazing propaganda uh, outlet for these guys to promote uh, pro-war, like you said, pro-CIA. Uh, do you want to also mention maybe some of the mob connections because you dive into that. So we're, you know, just to kind of, to to paint this bigger picture about how we've got the we've got not just the government and intelligence agencies but also the mafia and those with your JFK knowledge are, are seem to be pretty inextricably in entwined and Hollywood is no different. Sure. Well, uh, one great uh, person that's a kind of that crosses over from the JFK assassination to Hollywood is Johnny Roselli, who uh, you know he, he, his body was uh, you know found classic mob style. I mean, his body was found in an oil drum. Uh, right as he was going to be called uh, for the House Select Committee on Assassinations in the, in the 70s. Uh, but Roselli went back decades. He was like uh, 
one of the mob's men in Hollywood. And, he, you know, this was a playboy guy. And, he, you know, he had affairs with lovely uh, actresses like Donna Reed. You know, it broke my heart to learn that. I love Donna Reed. It's a wonderful life. You yeah. know, she's messing with stupid mobster. But, uh, and there were you know, other people. Al Capone had a huge influence going back to, uh, you know, the early days you know, there, there, and the music business. You know, they're, they're one of the great urban legends that for, uh, for one of Al Capone's birthdays, that's Waller. The great, you know, talking about somebody that was screwed over. This is the guy that sold sold a bunch of songs for a bag of hamburgers once. That's yeah. what he was. Uh, right. Fats Waller, incredible entertainer, and he died way too young, like some of these people. Uh, he was basically kidnapped and taken to this big soiree for it was Al, Al Capone's like weekend long, and then he was paid well. He was kidnapped. He didn't have, he didn't have a choice in the matter. So, uh, but that's the way the mob worked. Then. And you know, when they made the original uh, Scarface, uh, I think it was. I remember who the director was, Henry Hawk. But it was a big director. And uh, basically, he and uh, Capone had, had a you know, very good relationship. They were they were just like, you know, glowing in their endorsement of each other. And uh, so there's a reason why you go back and look at the films of, those, of that era, too. Like Jimmy Cagney and Humphrey Bogart, George Raff, Edward G. Robinson. These were all gangsters. The gangster films that became popular, they glorified the mob. And we saw it culminate, you know, films like The Godfather, The Godfather Two, and and then later with uh, Sopranos, yeah. where the the mob, the mob, the Goodfellas, all these films that it's, that's still it's a great market because people are fascinated by that behavior. But there's there's never been really a film that that, that portrays the mob negatively. There's always there's always a positive spin on it where you know there's. They have this code of ethics, and uh, they're they're shown as human beings, but nobody chose them for people that are you know going out and you know Anthony Soprano, you know, or Tony Soprano was you know he was a human being, he had a life, yeah, but he killed people for a living, you know, and I, I think there's something disturbing about trying to to humanize that, but that's that's the way. So the mob and and, and Hollywood have always been. I, I talk about some of the figures in the studios, you know, people like Eddie Mannix, who was a uh, uh, Leo G. Mayer's number two at MGM. Very powerful figure, and uh, there's this guy. I am almost certain ordered uh, the death of George Reeves. You know, George Superman Reeves, because uh, George Reeves was screwing around having an affair with his wife, openly, and so they just you know, claimed he committed suicide. It's ridiculous. I mean, Eddie Mannix should have been the chief suspect there, but Eddie Mannix had been the cleanup boy in Hollywood for decades. I mean, rumors about you know Clark Gable, you know, killing somebody when driving drunk. He went in and cleaned it up, and he blamed it on somebody else, and. Uh, they would get to the scene to the, you know, the, that's just one studio, MGM. They would go to the scenes of these crimes or uh, if their stars had gotten in trouble, getting women pregnant and things like that, they would, they would go and clean it up. And uh, Mannix was, had a distinct mob persona about him. So it's no surprise that the uh, films of these studios would, would, would uh, ultimately pretty, pretty much put these gangsters in a positive light. And so the audiences really made heroes out of them. Yeah, I mean, that's another interesting thing. I think when when you talk about sort of glorifying the mob, it gets back into uh, touching again on Dave McGowan's work about a, a lot of the social engineering that's coming out of Hollywood, because it's not, it does glorify behavior that's not exactly virtuous, don't you think? I mean, it's not exactly like we're being presented. I've interviewed some guys actually that uh, basically tell people to stop watching TV. You know, they, they think it's almost like a, a mind control programming tool uh that's used to um uh 
kind of facilitate uh, a less than virtuous behavior in, in everyone, you know, to kind of dumb down the masses, if you will, and instead of being used as, uh, I think you could argue that, that good art should help lift us up, right? <laughs> sure, sure. Absolutely. Well, and, you know, and we, when we talked about bullyocracy in the last year, I don't know if I touched on it, but uh, certainly I, I've mentioned many times how what I think the role of a popular culture played in uh, making bullying so prevalent. And, and that goes back yeah. to, again, they, whether, whether you want to talk about the original gangsters, uh, Jimmy Cagney, Edward G. Robinson, and Humphrey Bogart, but especially once uh, Marlon Brando came along in The Wild One, 1951, where, and, and then uh, James Dean, the brooding guy, and then, of course, you know, even in the early Elvis, his characters were bad boys. And they weren't, they, right. they, were mar- they weren't marketed as good, wholesome people. They, they, these had problems, they kind of crossed the line, they were violent. Uh, they maybe they slapped their dames around, you know, that kind of thing. The dames loved it. You know, this was this was what was marketed to them. <laughs> right. And in all, how many films have you ever seen over the years where the the uh, the leading lady is, uh, you know, has a boring, a nice guy boyfriend or whatever that likes her, but he's boring. And, and but there's a brooding bad boy in a leather jacket or something, or the motorcycle or something that's uh, that's there and catches her eye, keeps getting her attention. And who she always ends up with the bad boy right. in every film. So I maintain that that message was was uh, delivered to a couple generations of women. And I think they got, and I think that's why you see now, even why, to me, I think it's a psychological reason why you see so many bad relationships and why women choose the wrong men because they're going after that thing they've been told is the cool thing, the hot thing. And uh, it ties into bullying, and I, I use it. I, I think that's why uh, bullies prevail. One of many reasons is because a lot of the popular girls that the, the bullies are trying to impress, they side with the bullies instead of you know defending the weak and, and saying it's not it's not cool to do that. But nobody ever does that. So I guess it's a, it's a complex issue. But I think that Hollywood definitely, for a long time, has had a huge impact on the way people think. They they market. Uh, and you, I, the guy that said, no, don't watch TV, that's a good idea. I mean, if, if you're educated enough and you realize it's there, you can you can certainly watch these things. You can see what the enemy's doing. But right. most people aren't educated to it. They're absorbing the propaganda. They don't even know. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, uh, you go back to a book like Huxley's Brave New World, um, talking about basically eliminating the family unit. In fact, I mean, that that's a, a great a great book to even kind of talk about. I mean, that was written when in the 1930s. And that kind of lifestyle uh, was, you know, the, the main character in that book is uh, sort of an, an indigenous person from outside of the city and whatnot, and then falls in love with one of the main characters. But everyone is just very promiscuous in this in this futuristic society, and there's not a lot of, uh, uh, you know, virtuous behavior, if you will. Certainly, no kind of family unit structure, and 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 there are those that 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 uh, posit that, um, you know, the upper classes are essentially trying to break down the family unit because a strong family and a strong family unit could pose a threat to, you know, the upper classes at the top of the hierarchy. And um, I think it's just such a poignant point that you make that over generations now in Hollywood, uh, the kind of relationships that, um, that we're seeing over and over again are, are actually really unhealthy. Um, and then as you described that, uh, a lot of the off-screen behavior by these very same actors is very similar. So, uh, yeah, why don't you just tell a couple of the stories? You know, something that really came up for me as I was reading the book, I mean, these studios will hire 
people to just follow around the actors and make sure they don't get too drunk so they can actually yes. work. You know, I mean, stories yeah. like that are like, how can somebody, you know, be yeah. rich and famous who's such a, a raging alcoholic and the studios are willing to put up with it and even spend, you know, tons of extra money to like contain their horrific behavior. Yeah, well, you have people like uh, Spencer Tracy was one of those people that was really, uh, I came away just researching him and having a, I can't watch any more of his movies, let's put it that way. He's just apparently right. an awful human being. And he was one of the ones that looks like he's drunk. That he could, and it, it's run through the courts of Hollywood too. And again, why, what were they What were they drowning their sorrows in? I don't understand. These were movie stars. They had the world was their oyster. They had people, you know, worshiping them. Uh, I, I don't, and, and most of these people, you know, most of them, eh, the disparity in pay was there, but most of them were obviously paid really well. There weren't too many of those guys at that level that were screwed over. But you had people like Spencer Trace, people like Errol Flynn, who was you know, probably had sex with more women than anybody's ever lived. If you believe the stories, right. <laughs> I mean, this guy was unbelievable. And, uh, you know, but he just, he was such a drunk that, uh, you know, and you just wonder what, why. And then if you, he died at age 50 and he looked like he was 80. Yeah, I mean, he's, he was just worn out, and uh, so you have people like that. Uh, John Barrymore is another one. A lot of these who just they they burn the candle at both ends to such an alarming extent that uh, it's just shocking. Now, in more modern times, it's been more drugs, I guess. People like uh, River Phoenix, you know, get, dying of a drug overdose, not rolling with twenty years old or whatever. Yeah, uh, so it happens way too often. But uh, you wonder what's going on. But I think you know. It, Creative people tend to have, I think, you know, to be uh, to be able to have that kind of personality. First of all, you have to have the talent. But I've met people when I was writing songs. I've met people that had the talent, but they didn't necessarily have the personality. Uh, you, you've got to really, because you've got to come out of your shell completely. You have to break down all inhibitions. So to be able to, to jump out there and just you know, go through all the emotions to suddenly act real. I mean, even if you're just acting. Yeah. You're acting really angry or whatever. It still takes a toll on you physically. And a lot of people just can't do that. So obviously they have the talent to do it. But I think it's a, there's a reason why you see so many unstable personalities. They go there because they, uh, they do have, you know, screw loose or whatever in some ways. I mean, they're not quite all there. And that kind of adds to their ability in some ways. Like if you look at some of the greatest actors, people like Jack Nicholson and Water Days, uh, this guy, Edward Norton, if you've seen Edward Norton off screen, he just acts like a certifiable psycho. Yeah. I mean, he he treats people horribly, but he's mesmerizing on screen. But is he able to do that? I mean, Jack Nicholson, I've seen him, you know, he, he was incredible on screen, but he was able to play a terrifying thing. And apparently he, there was a lot of that in his real life. And uh, so I think that's, you know, there, there's something to that. These figures, are, especially the play that can play really weird, crazy characters. Uh, I think they have to have that in themselves somewhere. I think you have to, you know, some of the characters like, you know, Jimmy Stewart, James Stewart was a great actor, but he was just a real nice guy. And they, that's why he really couldn't be convincing as anything but a nice guy on screen because that's the way he was in real life. Mm -hmm. Cary Grant, one of my favorites, was always Cary Grant. Just an incredible, magnetic figure, charming, great looking. He made every line sound great. You know, I would have loved to have been a scriptwriter for Cary Grant because every line would have sounded perfect coming out of his mouth. But, uh, that, you know, he had a, he had a very complex life too. But a very abandoned by his mother. You know, was messed up. He didn't know about his sexuality or anything. But uh, he was able to hold it together a little better. But he also later he did a lot of LSD. He's an older guy, right? And, uh, so you know, and he, he you know he was trying to run away from something too. So 
there are very few of them out there that Jimmy Stewart's the one I could think of that really had no controversy at all. But there are very few like that. There were big stars that had no controversy. They weren't messed up sexually or they didn't know what they were, or, you know, closeted gays or whatever. Or, or, uh, they weren't committing crimes off screen, drug abuse, alcoholism. Very few of them like that. And I, I just think it's the industry. You still see so many people, for instance, in Hollywood smoke cigarettes. Yeah. And, you know, that's kind of become really verboten. And I mean, if you look at the, the population at large, cigarette smoking is pretty much confined to really the lower classes. Very poor people tend to do except Hollywood, except the entertainment, you know, the music, but the, the entertainment industry, they overwhelmingly smoke. And hmm. I'm not sure why, because they know they have to know it's not healthy for you. And the same people will preach, you know, a lot of they'll be vegan vegans and, you know, they'll be you know preaching to you about stuff with smoking cigarettes. So uh, it's it's a strange industry, and I, I uh, just a few I've interacted with. You have to they live by their their first of all they had their own time schedules. Time means nothing to them, so you just whatever time it is, just throw it out the window. It's way, and and uh, they they have their own it's their their own world. They're in their own world because they don't live in the same world as we do. That's why I try to cut them slack because uh, we really can't judge them the way they would cut anyone else because they're they're not you know. They, they, they're not treated. If they're big enough star, the, the public doesn't treat them like you know, they, they, you know, they're mobbed wherever they go. That has to have an impact on you. You can't, I don't know how you can have a normal ego. Yeah. People are constantly running up to you and asking for, and you know, John Barber, my friend, who's become one of my best friends, very gratifying, 88 years old, has the energy of a teenager, fantastic guy. And of course, he wrote the foreword to this book. I was really gratified. There was really nobody else I, I could have asked to write for, but he, he told me that, um, when he was hosting Real People, number one show on television at the time, he said it was so disillusioning to him when he so many mothers would would come up to him and offer sex to their kids on the show. Oh and, wow! And he and he said so. You know, I, I think that shows again that there there people are willing to do almost anything to break into that world or to give. And you see that the term. I mean, how can any? You don't really have rock stars now the way you used to have. Because uh, the music business, uh, as Mark Mick Jagger has said, you know, there's about a 15 year period from like, uh, you know, the late 60s to the early 80s, where there was huge money, you know, and, and, but other than that, they've always struggled. But during that era, especially when, you know, when I was going to concerts in the 70s and 80s, uh, where there are packed audiences everywhere, these big band members, you know, things like the Eagles and things like that, who all have unimaginable wealth, they, they would each have a scout one of their buddies and they would look in the audience and they would look for girls for them. And they, they, they knew what they wanted, who they wanted. And of course it didn't matter if they were underage often they were, and they would just go tap them on the shoulder and say, Hey, you want to come backstage? And uh, these girls, I mean, just imagine being in, a, in an occupation where sober girls, sober females will just go backstage knowing they're just going to have sex with you because of who you are. They don't have to know you at all. And you, you, they're perfect strangers to you. Right. That's, that has to, that you can't, I don't see, you can't be like the average person when that kind of stuff is going on. And so I think that's, it's, and the athletes go through the same thing. That's why athletes have the same, although athletes don't have the disparity in pay, you know, athletes are, you know, incredibly overpaid on a consistent basis, but they have the same group. saying, or, you know, they have women that will just, sex with them because of who they are and i think that's why you have so many cases of um rape allegations and everything because they, they're not used to anybody saying no to them right 
So, uh, so the, I, I just don't think you can judge any of them. That's they're they're different. You know, that Scott Fitzgerald said the rich are different from you and me. Well, rich, famous celebrities are really different than you and me. So. Right. Well, and let's talk uh, a little bit about that. A little bit more about the allure of fame and what it is. I mean, it's such a fascinating. Um, like I don't, I don't know. It's fascinating that that people want it and then desire it. And then I think there's almost a burden though on these yeah. same people once they've achieved it. And like you were talking about, a lot of uh, mental instabilities will come out probably as a result of kind of carrying this burden. They can't go anywhere without being recognized. Right. Uh, and then also you mentioned in the book really actually how few people achieve that level of fame. I think you said something like one, two percent of all the people that that kind of go move to Hollywood thinking they're going to become famous, even yeah. ever really break into it at all. Um yeah. so why don't you discuss that a bit? Just the allure of it, how many people seek it and how few people actually get it, and almost the arbitrary nature of of those who do get it. I mean, that's what's yeah. so bizarre about the whole book is like there, there's almost no real like, why does so-and-so get, you know, to become a hundred millionaire or plus and have, you know, a, a long, lifelong period of fame and somebody else that maybe is doing uh, better or equal types of work uh, get paid almost nothing and then maybe fizzle out in a year or two or, or a couple of, you know, after a couple of gigs? Yeah, there, there's no rhyme or reason. That's a, that's a major thrust of the book. But I think, yeah. you know, that Oscar Wilde, who is a an early version of someone who was uh, famous for being famous. And he was a well-known writer, uh, certainly wrote the picture of Dorian Gray and lots of famous plays, but he was most noted for being a wit at parties. You know, those days, I think Andy Warhol on steroids. I mean, this guy, he right. would gather around him to hear his conversations. He would live these little witticisms that live on. And one of his expressions, I think, captures this perfectly. And he said, there are two tragedies in life. One is not to get your heart's desire. The other is to get it. Right. And so I, so I, so I, th I think that's what a lot of these people, and I think there's a, a feeling of guilt. And I, I've heard some quotes from some of them where they, uh, they don't think they deserve it, maybe, or they can't, you know, they can't deal with the fact that uh, that they're you know, suddenly they've gone from nothing to riches. And uh, so, and, and they, this is what they wanted, but maybe I, I don't know. Maybe in their naivety, they they believe they'll still be able to keep their somewhat of their privacy. And they'll be able to have the riches and the fame, and they'll be, and that's why I think too many of these stars uh, selfishly just think that uh, okay, we can turn on the applause when we want to, you know. When I go here and it's sanctioned by my agent, my publicist, and everything, you guys go crazy, you know. I want you, you know, people have to hold you back, and I want you screaming and everything. But uh, if I'm walking the streets and you see me, you don't, I don't want you to react at all. Don't bother me. Yeah, I'm eating at a restaurant. Don't come over and ask for my autograph. And I, I don't think you can turn that on and off because you've established this star making machine. The power of celebrity is so huge. So when people see a celebrity on public, it's like, you know, they, they don't think of them as a human being. And uh, because you're not marketed as a human being, you're marketed as a star. Yeah. So, of course, you and of course, you want to, you know, want to run over and try to get their autograph picture with them. You know, so you post it on social media. Hey, look, you know, I saw Tom Cruise or whatever. And that's, <laughs> that's human nature. Everybody wants that. Right. So uh, and to their credit, I think probably more than not will be pretty accommodating fans. But the ones the ones that like won't take pictures with them, the Jennifer Lawrence is the people that, you know, admits she acts horrible to people. I, and she seems proud of it. I, I don't understand that at all. 
Yeah. But, uh, and then a lot of these people will probably, uh, you know, really regret it later because, uh, you know, famous fleeting as this book shows has very short shelf life. And a lot of the people, and I, I would, if Jennifer Lawrence could hear me out there, I would say, you, you're pretty much a, <laughs> I think a prime candidate for this, honey, where <laughs> I, I don't necessarily think you're going to have a, a longevity as a famous person. Uh, enjoy it while you can, but, you know, soak it up and enjoy the fans while you can, because another 20 years that I, I have in the book, it's amazing, like stars from the 80s, especially, that's not that long ago, that have just disappeared. Yeah, I mean they've they've done nothing, and these are the huge stars. These are the you know the Jennifer Lawrence's of their day, and uh, they just for whatever reason you know sometimes it's their choice, and that's probably oddest of all when people walk away from themselves. Like the Deborah Wingers, I think, of the world, Winger again, huge in the eighties. Is people even remember Deborah Winger now? Very many. Uh, she was the thing back then, you know, and uh, I haven't seen a photo of her for a long time. But uh, more uh, more often than not, it's the, whatever reason. The Rebecca De Mornay, people like that. Uh, I see more nineties, but uh, they for whatever reason the film roles uh, evaporate. They pick a couple projects that that blow up that don't you know don't do anything, and then they're not the studios don't ask for them. They get the next hot young group that comes up that's younger, yeah. and uh, that's that's what they do. So. Um, very short life expectancy of fame. That's why, you know, it, it, so it gets to the point where, you know, if you were on a television show back then and you just, I give examples of that over and over again. It's so many people like to love to examine the cast of these television shows. Even I'm talking about ones that are, you know, like into the, uh, I guess, like the 80s or maybe, maybe into the 90s, a show like Step by Step, which I never watched at all, but Suzanne Summers and Patrick Duffy. I never watched one episode of that, but so I didn't even know who the cast was. But I looked at all the kids, and uh, none of them have done anything since the show. I mean, it's, it's, that's what amazes me. It's that uh, it wasn't just Leave It to Beaver and shows like that, where you know the older shows where they didn't do anything after that. Now, presumably, these people are made more money, obviously, and uh, they had a better royalty residual thing because you know all the people you talk to from the old TV shows, several of them. Uh, they typically had uh, nobody understood, like, uh, you know, the people the Brady Bunch told me, you know, we didn't think there was going to be these, we'd be watching reruns of this all over the world. Right. You know, 40 years later. And uh, so it was unimaginable. People, the you know, cast of Star Trek ended up taking, uh, you know, kind of a very modest lump sum payment in lieu of future residuals. Obviously, they regretted doing that, and uh, so uh, people never thought. I think, and of course, even going back farther, the, the uh, main uh, you know inspiration for this book was George Spanky McFarland with the Little Rascals of Our Gang. Mm -hmm. uh, so, the people like Our Gang and the Three Stooges, uh, they could never have envisioned. First of all, that television hadn't been invented yet. These were you're talking about the early 1930s. So, uh, they had no idea that this invention was going to come into every home by the 1950s, and their shorts were going to be sold to that ten people, you know, baby boomers eventually like me would be watching them and loving them. And somebody winning a lot of money on those shorts. Right. They, they made nothing. And so I, I, under, I would have been more bitter than they were. Spanky McFarland was very bitter. And that's why I, you know, that I was inspired to write this book when I read about him, but um, the three stooges were so philosophical. And there are others as well that, uh, that did not do. They got nothing from this this explosion in television. I and I just had something just didn't smell right with me there. I thought that was terribly unfair 
And I thought, no, how would I feel, you know, sitting there as a middle-aged uh, person, not, you know, who knows if I get to work in a regular job or you know, try to struggle to make ends meet. And my name and likeness is being used all over the place. Millions of people are watching it and loving it. And I get nothing out. There's something terribly unfair about that. So, uh, and that's, you know, that's a big part of the book is that, is that the, the unfairness of it to the actual performers that created Yeah. I mean, that, uh, that portion of the book, it was certainly stark because there were so many uh, actors and actresses from, like you're saying, from the old days that had no idea there was ever going to be any kind of rerun action. And so once that kicked in with cable television, suddenly they're like super famous again and none of them are seeing a dime off of it. And it's just phenomenal to realize. And I guess, I mean, the, um, the production studios, the corporations that own the studios must've just been raking in millions and millions and millions of dollars and not even thinking that they need to pay the talent, anything at all. Um, you tell stories that are just fascinating about people that, you know, a lot of those actors from the fifties and sixties that were in hit TV shows, uh, but they're getting no residuals later on in life. Uh, and they're working regular jobs. I mean, they've just moved on and they're working regular jobs. If not, uh, you recount several examples of, of essential people that had their more than 15 minutes, five or 10 years of fame winding up homeless and on the streets, just, uh, unable to even, you know, uh, earn the most basic living. Uh, such such tragedies that just happen over and over again. You want to give us some of those examples? No, it is. I mean, you had to certainly uh, Sylvester uh, uh, Stone, Sly and the Family Stone. Right. A huge, huge band had yeah. tons and tons of man selling records. He was all Troy. You know, and in the, it's easier to understand actually in the music business because a lot of these guys simply don't get paid at all. They just don't. And uh, what happens in, in the music business is uh, these guys are usually maybe early 20s typically when they're, you know, the band hits. And then uh, if they suddenly make it big, first of all, they're so excited. I mean, you know, when I signed my first contract for my book, I was so excited. I didn't read it at all. <laughs> right. and, you know, and, and so Hidden History has a terrible royalty rate. And that's that's sold, you know, by far most of my books. It's, I've lost a lot of money with that. But, yeah. I, but I, I was just so excited to be published. So if I'm in a band and somebody, you know, uh, you know, Columbia Records or whatever signs me to a contract, Capital Records, I, I you think I would, an average 20 some year old's got to read the contract? For that? Right. They're going to be so excited. I'm going to be a rock star. Yeah, baby, we're going to make you a star. And then typically, what they do, they'll give them, they'll, they'll provide them with drugs if they're into that or alcohol, uh, room service at the best hotels. They've already got groupies. So, they, you know, when you're in your early 20s, what are you thinking of? Besides music, you're thinking of girls all the time. So, you have all the girls you could ever want. Uh, typically, the studio, I mean, the record company will buy you a car, a nice car. You're living the life of rally. You're loving it. You have expense money, but then, as so many people in the band told me, is they, they came when they came to ask for royalties. What royalty? You know, they they never, even though they knew they'd sold millions of records. So, and after the 15 minutes of fame wears off, after you have your two or three hits, uh, and nobody typically, unless you're the front man, Sly Stone, people knew who he was because semester. But if you're like the bass player, I talk to people from the groups like the Buckinghams, the Trog, the Wild Thing. You know, yeah, other, people like that ventures walk don't run Hawaii Five O theme song, uh, but nobody knows who their drummer's name was. Nobody knows who the bass player's name right. was. These are so they typically they could literally be working in your office. You wouldn't know because you don't know who they are. I mean, they're not they're not like John Paul George and Ringo. 
Right. There weren't too many Beatles where everybody knew the names of all these band members. So that, that was easy to see why it happened. And I give examples, you know, like uh, Freddie and the Dreamers was one of the British invasions. Uh, it, if you're people that are old enough to remember, they did this kind of crazy dance to the Freddie. And uh, I'm telling you, now they had some hits, you know, and uh, they were unique looking. But uh, after their fame, you know, the 15 minutes of fame wore up, I, one of their uh, bass player, guitarist or something, he, he became a taxi cab driver. Hmm. And that's, you know, did he even bother telling, I don't know, did he tell his passengers? Probably not. You know, and, and, you know, they might not have answered if he asked them. And there are so many people like that, you know, when uh, Graham Parker, who is, uh, he's become a friend, you know, he, he's not that well. Nobody sold many millions of records. He was a part of the soundtrack of my life. And he's just in the, uh, in the late 70s to up through the 90s. And uh, he's still playing at 70 years old. But he told me, you know, yeah, you know, the, the Grand Parker and the rumor, his dad was saying the rumor, you know, they they had to go. He said after our day and the sun was up, you know, they had to go get uh, the blokes had to go and get regular jobs. And uh, that's the way it is. You know, there were because in an industry like that, when you're not, you know, when you're when it's when your 15 minutes of fame is up, you're not getting paid anything. So you had to have made so much money. Yeah, if you accumulated a couple hundred million dollars, very top did. But nobody else, If you even if you got paid and you made a couple million dollars, let's say, maybe, uh, theoretically. Still, if you go how many years without income, you know, sure. can you go? And so and you've you got to realize these people that uh, Graham Parker, I think, is one that did have something set up. Some of the people, like the original, with the original drifters or the coasters, one of those groups, uh, had uh, their management set up a, a plan where they would get social security payments later. And, but most of these bad, most of these entertainers don't have anything like that, so they're not collecting social security typically unless they had a plan, a way to, you know, to have it withholding taken out of their, uh, you know, their uh, paychecks over the years. But a lot of them are unprepared for that. They don't have that, and so they're living on whatever, you know, they're living on whatever they have that they made in the past, and that's why you see so many of them. So many of the people that are on uh, TV shows, especially that didn't do anything else after that, almost all of them have like websites and they're trying to sell. And that's how you can get a hold of them. And most of them will answer you. But uh, they'll be selling paraphernalia, you know, related to whatever show there was on. Right. You know, they, they, you know their artwork, I think uh, Veronica, uh, I mean, uh, Angela Cartwright, Lost in Space. It's some kind of, I think she makes needle or something like that, or artwork maybe or something. But a lot of them have that where they're trying to sell something that, that people may still be fans of that show. And you see so many of these people also going to uh, conventions, band conventions, where they'll meet the public and, and they'll, you know, they'll a lot, most of the time they'll, they'll charge a little bit for their autograph. Uh, you know, they'll sign a copy of their books or T-shirts, something to do with whatever made them famous in the first place. And they have fans that would watch them when they were young. And they're gratified. And, you know, there's a lot of my I got to talk to a lot of, them, you know, from Watson Space. Uh, Marta Kristen Kane, you know, who's, who played Judy on Lost in Space. You know, a lovely person. Most of these people are, but um, not very many of them are wealthy. And so it's 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 a different experience because not unlike most of us, they can't just keep working a job. And uh, if there's no work to be had, you know, and again, a lot of them they're they're not asked. You know, maybe they end up doing you know dinner theater or something. And you see that a lot over big stars that end up doing dinner theater. Yeah, because it's all they know to do, and it's a paycheck. Uh, so in many ways, and I, you know, people have told me that, you know, that uh, a couple of my friends said, "Man, I can't stand any more of these stories in the book." Yeah, they're sad. It is what it is. I mean, there's there's a <laughs> lot. Unfortunately, there's a lot more sad stories than than happy stories that, that come out of the entertainment. 
If you are listening to this, you are listening to the first free hour of The Shift with Doug McKinty. For access to the full feature-length versions of the podcast, go to www.theshiftnow.com and subscribe for the audio version for just $6 a month. Access the full-length episodes in video form through rockfin.com by subscribing at the Shift with Doug McKinty landing page. For $9.99 a month, you gain access not only to The Shift, but also all other premium content material hosted on the platform. Find out more at www.theshiftnow.com backslash store. Detoxify your body, decolonize your mind, make the shift. Just to go back and that to the, to the title of the book on borrowed fame, it really is. It's gotta be like these people that maybe they experience five years of a good run on a TV show. It gets to their head uh you know people are recognizing them in the streets they they're making a lot of money for for a short time there and then to go back to normal and live i mean you you discuss multiple instances of not being able to even figure out you know these actresses and actors that had five five or ten years of a pretty big a pretty big fame pretty big run and you can't even really find their gravestones or where they were buried or, you know, nobody has any idea what happened to them in their 60s and 70s and 80s or, you know, what even happened to them after their 30s. But to go and have, say, that five or 10 years where you are in the limelight, it gets to your head. You think you're some kind of big star and then just to have it all disappear. And this happens way more often than not. Right. I mean, yeah. you know, it's just such way a more. small percentage chance where somebody actually is going to you know, start in their twenties and make a full career, uh, where they actually become like a big hit. And so, you know, the vast majority of these people that work in the business to, to get a taste of it and then to have it taken away, uh, it's really gotta, I just can't even imagine myself how jarring it must be or, or disappointing. And I think, I mean, yeah. So just to, to kind of close off here, maybe, uh, you know, discuss that, that experience, because as you've had a chance to talk to so many of these people, you know, I, it's, it feels like a lot of them are actually pretty down to earth, maybe even happy to get out of the business. And some of them, you know, just couldn't handle it, lost it after that ended up, uh, into drugs, uh, maybe ended up committing suicide, maybe ended up one of these more tragic stories. Yeah, you know, the last chapter of the book, too, I go into uh, basically the history of fame and, and what what it means to be famous. And I talk about, I, I came up, you know, I found a bunch, a bunch of names that were huge stage actors in the 1700s and 1800s. And, you know, again, nobody, nobody right. knows who they are now. But yeah. these, were, these were, you know, the Brad Pitts of their era. I mean, they, they were, because you didn't have movies. The stage was, you know, the biggest way to, to make fame. Now, you Ironically, have somebody like Shakespeare who, who has lasting power. There's really nobody else. I mean, the only the only actor from the 1800s that we remember is John Lewis Booth, and that's because of something else. Yeah, nothing to do with it. Although he was a matinee <laughs> I, idol. You know? I was actually surprised. You know, I'm a bit of a history buff myself, and I didn't realize that he was such a big star. Like, oh, he's an actor. That's all I yeah. ever heard about him. I had no idea he was like huge. He was. He, he huge. was. A, he was a matinee idol. One of the history teachers around here compared him to Brad Pitt. Wow. And so he was that famous and he was a matinee idol. And uh, so, yeah, be like you know, a really huge, famous actor, assassinating president now. It's just unthinkable. But um, yeah, so the, you look at all those people, they were the glory of their time. So, you know, you take the title of a great baseball book about the old baseball players in the 1900s uh, that Lawrence Ritter wrote many years ago, one of my favorite books. They were the glory of their times, but they've been forgotten. And uh, so I, I look at it like, uh, 
you know, how many, I go back even to the actors of the 80s, even in the 90s. And a lot of these people have been forgotten already or generally forgotten in terms of, I mean, maybe people remember what they were in, but they don't really remember them. Oh, yeah, I forgot about them or something. And it's it's amazing how quickly, uh, you know, that 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 the fame, uh, you know, it goes away. I mean, even something like, you know, my, my son and I, one of our favorite shows was Smallville. Right. It's not that long ago at all. Right. You know, yeah, we, we watched that one, too. <laughs> yeah, it was great, great show. But, I mean, you look at, uh, you know, all the actors in that, Tom Welling even, I think he recently has got a role. He was played uh, Superboy, but for a long time he didn't appear to be doing anything. Uh, and then, of course, you had Allison Mack. Yeah, right. Who played Chloe, who got embroiled. In, I mean, you know, who thought this, you know, this lovely girl next door was into branding and, you know, uh, enslaving women. I mean, it's like, it was a slaver. I mean, in this crazy sex cult. And I talk about that in the book. But uh, so even that, though, but the rest of that cast, I mean, Christian Crook, who played uh, Lana, the love interest of the show, I mean, what has she done? Does any, how many people know who she is now? Yeah. That's, you know, you're talking about 10, 15 years. And so it, it, it's really quickly that fame can evaporate. So that's, you know, I, you know, I think maybe some of them try to enjoy it while they can. But uh, too many of them, I don't know if they just don't know the history of it and they think they'll continue to get these projects. But uh, that's the other thing you realize that a lot of it is you may hit it, you may hit it lucky once. Same thing with the music business. You may have a one hit wonder, but uh, that you're, you're never going to get that chance again. Nothing else worked. And, uh, and the same thing, you may get picked, especially if you're a young kid, you may get picked to be a member of a step like that that stays on the air five to ten years. It'd make a decent amount of money, should have a name established in the business, but then either you choose mysteriously not to do anything after that, or you just never get picked to be on anything else. And uh, I, I just find it amazing how that works. Where you know, I don't know how what the percentage is of how often the actor decides for whatever reason to walk away, or I think it's obviously probably more often that the industry, for whatever reason doesn't give them another opportunity so that's you know that's one of the probably the main point of the book is what is fame how fleeting it is how unfair it is yeah and uh, how inconsistent uh, it is well what an interesting topic kind of a departure um for myself i mean normally i'm doing a, a you know more political issues yeah, um, yeah. and it was it was interesting to kind of to kind of uh, sidetrack and go into this concept of fame a little bit. It, and it really does raise more questions almost than, than it provides answers because it seems yeah. so arbitrary and so, uh, so difficult to, to really even figure out why one person can make it. Some people end up with a lot of money. Other people will end up uh, homeless or a suicide or a complete tragedy. Um, you know, some people can deal with it and, uh, still be normal, very nice people. Other people, it just goes straight to their head. Uh, they become impossible to work with. And then just, you know, the bigger picture of it all, uh, I think you boil it down to that concept of luck. Like, are some people just lucky, (laughs) you know, did they just like, absolutely, absolutely. Sure. Yeah in the right place at the right time and i think there is a lot of that there that's uh, you know that's uh, that's what john barber says all the time you know luck yeah and, and I, I think there's a lot to that so as it is in every other aspect of life well sounds good tom thanks uh don thanks for coming back on the show 
Oh, and uh, and uh, it's definitely an interesting book. If anyone uh, out there listening uh, has any interest at all in uh, the history of the entertainment industry, then this is one you'll want to pick up. Um, and really, even just the overall concept of fame. I mean, that's kind of what got got me about it was like just having these questions about what these famous people really go through and how eclectic it all is and how almost random and crazy it is. Uh, and just being able to kind of take the time to wonder because, you know, these industries are hugely influential. I mean, they literally build our culture. Um, and I don't know, to imagine that our culture has this foundation that that's so, you know, wild, crazy and arbitrary. I don't know what that says about it, about the bigger picture, but Absolutely. it's worth uh, thinking about. It was definitely made for a good conversation. So again, thanks for coming back on. And uh, you want to let people know where they can find the book and, and find out more about the rest of your work. Well, it's on Bard Fame, Money Mysteries, and Corruption in the Entertainment World. It's uh, Bear Manor Media, and uh, it's Amazon, Barnes & Noble, everywhere. I mean, it's it's uh, sold where other books are sold for. And also check my, my regular writings out at Substack at DonaldJeffries.media. You can search them, and you'll find on all kinds of interesting stuff. Yeah, I'll have to check out your Substack. Actually, it's been a it's been a great resource Substack since it's come online. Not yes. only because yeah. people can actually, you know, you can donate five bucks a month or whatever, so you can monetize a little bit, but also because there's so many uh, great ideas on that on that medium. Uh, and so far, I think it's it's censorship free. So there's a lot of different yes. a lot of diversity on there. Yes, there is. <laughs> All right, Donald Jeffries, everyone. And uh, I'll just remind you that you've been listening to The Shift. I've been your host. My name is Doug McKinty, and you can find all of my work at www.theshiftnow.com. Uh, you can contact me on uh, Facebook, just uh, my personal page. I do have a shift page. doesn't get a lot of action. My personal page is uh, at Doug McKinty, place to go. I'm on Twitter at McKinty, uh, and my videos are up uh, on, I am on YouTube, but uh, that one's been challenging. So, uh, better to find my stuff on Rockfin or Odyssey these days. So thanks everybody for listening. And thank you, Donald Jeffries for coming back on. Uh, I'll be looking forward to your next, next work. Do you have something in the, in the mix, by the way? Oh yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm deep into hidden history three. So we'll be going back Great. into more, more corruption. And... All right. Sounds good. We'll keep in touch. Thank you. Take care. Man. All right. You too. All right, ladies and gentlemen, there you have it. That was my conversation with Donald Jeffries. I want to thank everybody for listening. It was an interesting interview for me in that we got off the beaten path. I usually, as you know, talk about politics or philosophy or religion. Uh, and this book, I mean, that's usually what Donald talks about as well. If you'll recall, my last uh, interview with him was about the concept of bullying and his book, Bullyocracy, which I thought was uh, really important, especially in terms of what people go through in public education, but also even in the corporate world and in their jobs and just the prevalence of, of aggressive and passive aggressive behavior uh, in our culture at large and how much we just sort of take it for granted. So that was a really interesting conversation. I wanted to have him back on. Uh, he's also done a lot of uh, research into the Kennedy assassination uh, and he's written a couple of uh, other books as well. But this one uh, got away from the whole uh, conspiracy uh, history political vein and just uh, asked a question about what the heck is going on in Hollywood. Uh, I thought it was especially interesting just to find out 
how, how large the wage gap is, how some artists, you know, hit it big, have great royalties, uh, may, maybe have one hit, they're a one hit wonder, but they make millions of dollars while others uh, never see a dime in royalties. Um, but then just kind of, I mean, the book just goes on and on about all the different issues that happen in the, in the business, in the industry, how people are treated, how many people that we think, uh, are pretty famous that we might recognize from some of our famous, our favorite shows just end up uh, impoverished alone, sometimes on the streets. Uh, I thought it was fascinating actually to know that the Screen Actors Guild, uh, built a convalescent home for actors when they get older because a lot of them, so many of them can't afford to take care of themselves in retirement. Um, so it's just so interesting to get into it. And also the surprising numbers of suicides, uh, the numbers of murders. Of course, he uh, dove into uh, the issue of Marilyn Monroe, uh, Elvis Presley, some of the questions behind what was going on there. And as part of our interview, that was interesting, I think, is that I have to believe that the powers that be don't want to see uh, people becoming too powerful, too famous, you know? I mean, an actor can be an actor as long as they play the part, do what they're told, don't have uh, perspectives that go too far outside of the mainstream, uh, the mainstream narrative, or else they invariably, they'll get blacklisted. They'll become uh, among the many that just uh, end up uh, living in ignominy, going from being super famous uh, all the way back to, you know, just working a regular job like the rest of us. Um, and so it gets very complex. And then we touched on this too in, in the conversation, and I think this is really fascinating and uh, wanted to get into it deeper. I wonder if I could find another interview about this. But I think the corporatization, uh, just as with everything else, the corporatization of art, though, and, cre and creativeness. Um, you know, in the last 50 or 60 years, maybe in the last 100 years since Hollywood's really kind of exploded, the whole scene is so much different than it used to be, you know, 150 years ago, 200 years ago, when you had a lot of different people, a lot of different writers, uh, different poets. Some of them would get relatively big, relatively famous. Um, but there wasn't the same kind of corporate system that just churned out art, you know? <laughs> I think after Andy Warhol, actually, the whole cultural aesthetic really shifted and not in a good way, uh, where uh, it was just completely commodified. And there's not really a lot of deep thinking going on. It's not profitable enough. Uh, and certainly, again, Ideas that run counter to the mainstream narrative, to that political narrative that that people want to, uh, that the powerful want to have represented, um, ideas that are outside of that just aren't going to get funded by the corporate system, right? I mean, there are what the the same corporations that give us the news also give us the the music industry and the uh, movie industry. So I mean, you know, <laughs> that right there tells you that there's kind of a blurring of the lines between uh, reality and nonfiction in terms of what they're giving us. And of course, uh, we could have talked longer uh, about uh, Hollywood's um, function in terms of propaganda in the society and the very, very close ties with these corporations and the CIA and how they um, very often uh, are used to seed information 
uh, ideas, concepts into the overall uh, population that really just kind of adds to uh, social engineering concepts. Uh, I think back to my interviews with Ted Hainick or Jason Kristoff, who really have looked a lot into this, and um, you know they've come to the conclusion that a lot of what we ingest on TV uh, is just almost, it's a hypnotic form of programming, literally television programming, right? Um, and I think that when you, when you get involved as an artist, I think most artists want to be artists because they want to be creative, they want to be free, uh, they want to be able to express themselves authentically, and then they get involved in a business that's really been designed to be part of this broader social engineering program, and it just leads to this kind of level of despair, frankly, uh, that I think a lot of them end up feeling. I mean, you go back to the people like uh, Jim Morrison, Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix. Uh, why were they so depressed, right? Why, why was the alcoholism rate uh, among that whole scene just uh, through the roof to the point where many, many of them, and there a lot of these stories are told in the book, in Donald's book, uh, you know, are drinking themselves to death or committing suicide or, uh, you know, just leading otherwise extraordinarily self-sabotaging uh, lives. Uh, and it doesn't end well. And the question is, and this is really, I think, what grabbed Donald's attention was, you know, these people have what everybody else wants, <laughs> you know? <laughs> they get to be famous. They get to, you know, have all the fame and fortune that we're all told that, you know, makes a human being really successful in this culture. Uh, and then when you look behind the curtain, you find just all kinds of levels of dysfunction. I mean, some of the stories in the book... He talks about actors that are such alcoholics that the studios would hire people to follow them around and make sure they didn't get too drunk before before the shoots, before the scenes, before they had to go to work. And uh, story after story after story about people who, you know, drinking themselves to death or uh, getting ripped off or, you know, dying under suspicious circumstances just over and over again. So I think it's important to kind of look at the broader picture. I mean... As you all know, if you've been listening to this show, I talk a lot about, I mean, the concept of the show is making this shift from this colonized, patriarchal, corporate, government culture that's uh, socially engineered into a more organic, uh, you know, a more organic kind of way of thinking about things, participating in more of the natural cycles of life. And... Um, the artists, I think, should play a very important role in this. Like, the artists should be the myth makers of their time. They should be, you know, uh, in indigenous cultures, we have the, the shaman. And in fact, uh, this reminds me of, of postmodern literary theory, which nobody even talks about anymore, but it was kind of getting to this place where the artist, some of the artists, uh, you know, part of the uh, uh, beatnik movement, Jack Kerouac, Allen Ginsberg, and those guys, they were making themselves the main character in their stories. It was starting to be a kind of a personality, a lifestyle that was liberated, that was free uh, from the corporate government complex. And that has been completely erased. Now when people hear postmodernism, they only think about the uh, political philosophy, which has become all the rage at this point. Um, but they're not thinking in terms of the aesthetics and this concept of what artists can do in terms of building the mythology, or uh, I guess what I would call it is documenting that collective unconscious uh, that psychologists talk about, or um, 
you know, built, creating the mythologies in that sort of Joseph Campbell kind of way, the kind of Star Wars kind of way <laughs> that we got, you know, 40 years ago, um, but really isn't happening in the modern day. And so, so much more and more, we're seeing uh, that the corporate entertainment industry is just turning out corporate art a la uh, Andy Warhol style uh, without any real substance and certainly without any real consciousness about what they're doing in terms of painting the picture of that collective unconscious. It's just become part of this social engineering, uh, you know, great reset technocratic type uh, social engineering that um, a lot of the intellectuals uh, are promoting these days, of course, because they become the top of the of the patriarchal pyramid in a technocracy. So uh, it's being more and more promoted. So I think a lot of these concepts can be delved into in terms of just why uh, Hollywood and the music industry uh, is really ultimately so dysfunctional when you just take a look at it. Uh, even these people that achieve the kind of levels of fame and fortune uh, that most of us would assume... Uh, kind of set you up for life. Uh, Donald just has story after story in the book on borrowed fame that show that many, many of them, I mean, really literally just a handful actually make enough money to kind of like uh, leave a legacy behind for their children even. And a lot more than you realize end up, uh, you know, in that convalescent home or even on the streets uh, because they're just completely busted, broke. Uh, they did a show, you know, for five or ten years. We may all know their faces. We may all know the show. Uh, and they just never worked again. And it's like the whole industry just churns these people out, gives them their 15 minutes of fame, and then spits them out and brings in the next guy. So uh, interesting conversation, interesting concepts to wonder uh, why it is the way it is in Hollywood. And so I want to thank Donald for coming on the show. And thank him for writing on Borrowed Fame because it was just interesting to get so much information. I mean, it was just story after story after story about uh, artists that find themselves in these very bizarre situations, these lifestyle situations um, that just kind of show the dysfunction behind uh, what we all kind of perceive as this this glorious um, entertainment industry that w that we see in front of the curtain, but you take you pry just a little bit behind that. And uh, lo and behold, it's actually, it's pretty nasty. I mean, the whole Me Too thing and Harvey Weinstein uh, was just, again, like, a you know, the curtain was pulled back for a second. We saw what was going on, but it gets, uh, it gets much more intriguing, much more mysterious, and, and uh, much more disturbing than that. So I uh, urge all of you to check out the book. You can find out more about the work of Donald Jeffries at www.donaldjeffries.wordpress.com. He's also got his blog, uh, lots of articles there. Um, and I'd also recommend at least checking out uh, Bullyocracy, if not some of his other work, um, because uh, he has a great interpretation, overall uh, historical interpretation uh, that comes out when you check out all of his different stuff. So again, donaldjeffries.wordpress.com, go check it out. And as always, uh, if you like what you're hearing, you can find out more about The Shift with Doug McKenty by going to www.theshiftnow.com. Uh, if you really want to stay in touch, sign up for the newsletter, and I'll send you uh, periodic reports uh, of all the new stuff that I put out, um, and you can keep in touch that way. Of course, there's always social media. I'm on Facebook. Just look me up, Doug McKenty. I'm on Twitter, at McKenty, uh, and all my stuff is posted at SoundCloud, uh, Odyssey, 
Rockfin, and uh, less and less YouTube these days because uh, the censorship is getting worse and I've been tagged a couple of times. So easier just to go to censorship-free platforms. All right. Uh, thanks again, everyone, for listening. And uh, next week I have special guest Captain Wardrobe coming on. 